0: Welcome to Cancer Conference Update and a review of key papers presented at the American Society of Hematology meetings in San Francisco in December 2014. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Craig Moskowitz, and to begin, we talked about maybe the number one story coming out of ASH, and the story Craig was smack in the middle of, Hodgkin lymphoma, and a landmark trial of the antibody drug conjugate Brentuximab-Vidotin as maintenance therapy after autologous transplant. But to begin, we talk about an even bigger story, the stunning new data on anti-PD-1 antibodies in Hodgkin lymphoma, two different data sets with agents approved in melanoma, nivolumab and pembrolizumab. The two large studies
1: were quite similar, actually. So to begin with, with nivolumab, nivolumab had a very, very broad phase 1b study, which included non-Hodgkin lymphoma, multiple myeloma, and Hodgkin lymphoma, and, you know, multiple investigators on each of the subsets. There was initial phase 1 study, and then, as you know, it's been expanded to, you may not know, it's been expanded to a registration trial in Hodgkin lymphoma, which is half accrued. At ASH... Two nivolumab abstracts were presented, one on Hodgkin lymphoma and one on everything else. The Hodgkin lymphoma data was presented by Philippe Armand, and a fairly typical patient population, heavily pretreated. Not all the patients have had prior brentuximab, but I think about 75% of them had, and nearly all the patients had previously had an autologous stem cell transplant. The dose that was used was pretty much the standard dose being used in all of the nivolumab studies, which is three milligrams per kilogram, given biweekly. A small study, 23 patients with relapsed and refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. In general, the overall response rate was very high, 87 percent. The CR rate is low, based upon PET, which was less than 20 percent. The remaining patients had stable disease or a partial response. The important thing is, is that a lot of patients had prolonged stable disease or prolonged partial response, such that nearly half the patients are still on treatment, which is quite unusual in this particular patient population. There was some correlative science done in this particular study looking on chromosome 9P24, which is where PDL1 and PDL2 sit. And in the 10 patients studied with Hodgkin lymphoma, there was overexpression at that locus. So it kind of makes sense that nivolumab, the checkpoint inhibitors, would work in Hodgkin lymphoma when the receptors are overexpressed. It's only seen in Hodgkin lymphoma and in PMBL. The other thing to note is that nivolumab is fully human, and I'll get back to that in a minute. With all these checkpoint inhibitors, which we can just summarize now before we do the other two abstracts, there are some endocrinopathies that are seen, which can be very annoying. It was seen in all three studies easy to control but need to be looked at, especially for thyroid dysfunction and adrenal dysfunction. And obviously there has been association with inflammation in the lung, not well described, has been pretty much reversible. I can say on my study, that happened to one patient, that patient was taken off study, and we did not retreat, although the patient had full recovery. I'm somewhat concerned about prior pulmonary dysfunction and then any patient getting a checkpoint inhibitor, it doesn't really matter to me what the disease is, but if you had radiation therapy to the chest or gemcitabine or bleomycin, or you have you know multiple pulmonary nodules causing dysfunction like in lung or something like that, I mean, I think that this is something that's going to need to be dealt with.
0: Yeah, I've heard that concern expressed related to lung cancer, although it hasn't seemed to play out that much so far, but I guess theoretically. Well,
1: I would have some people on board to help out.
0: So why don't we go back to your study and talk more specifically about exactly, you know, kind of what you presented.
1: Yeah. So the pembrolizumab study, which is MK3475, pembrolizumab is humanized. It's not human. Obviously, it binds to a different epitope than nivolumab. In our study, which we only presented the Hodgkin lymphoma cohort, there are a number of other cohorts, including patients with PMBL, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and MDS, but only the Hodgkin lymphoma cohort was presented at ASH. Interestingly, besides the 9P24 abnormality, which is frequent in classical Hodgkin lymphoma, it turns out that EBV infection can also cause overexpression of pdl one and PD-L2. And as you know, and the audience probably knows, that Reed-Sternberg cells express EBV about 50% of the time. That's not prognostic in Hodgkin lymphoma, but it may be interesting with PD-L1 expression. Although PD-L1 is overexpressed in up to 90% of Reed-Sternberg cells that have been tested, the amount of expression may be variable. And one can think that patients who are EBV positive may have a higher expression.
0: Can you just, before you get back into the data, talk a little bit more about sort of the biology that's going on here and how you understand, essentially, Hodgkin lymphoma, what you see under the microscope, and how that ties into checkpoint inhibitors?
1: Well, you know, the Reed-Sternberg cell sits in a milieu of a large mixed inflammatory infiltrate, which includes both monocytes, macrophages, eosinophils, as well as T-cells. And there's a tremendous amount of crosstalk between the Reed-Sternberg cell and, you know, the accessory cells that are there. So it certainly makes sense that this is a tumor that is crying to be manipulated immunologically. This, of course, is the first time that has been studied, and probably for the reason that it's, even though we talk about it all the time, because it's a highly curable malignancy and people like taking care of it, it is not common. You know, there's still, last year, 9,200 cases were reported to SEER, which, of course, is, you know, nothing compared to many of the solid tumors. So it, quite frankly, it's an orphan disease, and it was fortuitous that it was active in Hodgkin lymphoma. The nivolumab study was really a non-Hodgkin lymphoma study, and they threw some Hodgkin lymphoma patients in it. So certainly what PEMBRO does, as well as nivolumab, is there's both dual blockade of both PDL one and PDL 2 The dose that's going to be moved forward is going to be the standard dose being used at 3 milligrams per kilogram. The schedule that's going to be moved forward would be dependent upon if it's going to be combined with things. So, for example, clearly there's going to be an ABVD-like pembrolizumab study. There's going to be an ABVD-like nivolumab study. These are Q2-week treatments, so the treatments will be given at that rate. But one can imagine if you were going to give something like RCHOP, you would certainly give it at a different schedule because the half-life is very long. So I think to trying to match the dosing with the chemotherapy program that it's going to be linked with.
0: What about B. combined with anti-PD-1? Yeah,
1: so I think B. which is given, as you know, Q3 weeks by itself, but it's also given Q2 weeks with AVD.
0: So are there studies looking at that combination?
1: I desperately want to study that.
0: So just anti-PD-1 plus b
1: Yeah, pre-transplant as a salvage regimen. Hmm. So this particular study, patients with heavily pretreated Hodgkin lymphoma, all the patients previously failed Brentuximab, vidotin, a little different than the other one. All the patients either failed a transplant or progressed prior to a transplant. They got pembrolizumab. Patients who had no evidence of disease progression could stay on treatment until they were taken off. Primary endpoint was CR rate and then response rates and safety. In general, the patients with Hodgkin lymphoma usually have a good performance status. They're very heavily pretreated. I think the interesting things about this particular study is that as of today, there are 29 patients enrolled. Still 70% of the patients are on treatment. I saw somebody yesterday who got their 21st dose of therapy, What's a little bit different with this particular drug than I would say with Bividotin is that you don't necessarily get your best response at the first restaging. So with Bividotin, if you restage after two or three cycles and if you're not in a remission, you will never achieve a remission, never. Never been seen by me and I chair their scientific advisory board. I don't know of any case like that. With the checkpoint inhibitors, it's very different. Most of the patients who do get a complete response get it at the first restaging. However, patients with stable disease can convert to a partial response. Patients with progressive disease without new sites of disease. So widespread adenopathy, everything looks a little bit worse on PET scan, that actually can improve over time. So just like with melanoma, you don't want to stop patients too early, provided that there's no new sites of disease.
0: What about the other map presentation at ASH focusing on non-Hodgkin lymphomas?
1: The second NEVO study, which is not as overwhelming as the first NEVO study, is the one in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So what the NEVO non-Hodgkin lymphoma slash myeloma study was, was everybody else, okay? So as you look at the data, you will notice that it's actually a lot of patients had either non-Hodgkin lymphoma T-cell lymphoma and multiple myeloma. And suffice to say, the toxicity profile is very similar to that of Hodgkin lymphoma. No real significant problems. It was occasional pneumonitis. Dose is obviously the same. The problem, however, was that depending upon if you're a glass half full or glass half empty kind of guy, the results are really not that robust. And there's really no response, zero for 27 in myeloma. Seems like that's just probably not a myeloma drug. The peripheral T-cell lymphoma patients, although a couple of partial responses, the response duration was very brief. The follicular lymphoma patients and large cell lymphoma patients, you know, the response rate seems like it's something that should be studied a little bit further. Although I will say that I just happen to know the data. This wasn't necessarily presented, but the response durations are really not prolonged.
0: Yeah, it looks like maybe a quarter of the patients had partial responses, though.
1: Right, but it's fleeting. Right. But BMS is moving this forward, and there are a number of studies being looked at in non-Hodgkin lymphoma and large cell lymphoma.
0: What you hear a lot about in melanoma and other areas, potentially, is combining a CTLA-4 inhibitor with anti-PD-1. So we have that study open. What so exactly there it? is
1: a study at Memorial that we're leading. We are doing an ipi nivolumab phase one that has both solid and liquid tumors on it that I, have, I actually have two patients on right now, both with Hodgkin lymphoma, who are getting, and I think there's more. I have two. I think there may be four patients on study who are getting both ipi and nevo.
0: Do we know anything about ipi by itself? Not much.
1: Hmm. Not much activity in liquid tumor.
0: Hmm. So just kind of comparing the two data sets, at least that were presented in Hodgkin lymphoma, how would you compare what was seen there?
1: I think that with the number of patients that have been enrolled on study that are being reported as 52 so far, 23 with Nevo and 29 with Pembro. I don't see much of a difference between the two treatments. If you had to ask me what, you know, obviously I studied one, but I personally have six patients on the nivolumab registration trial right now. I've given NEVO to more patients than PEMBRO. I would say that I see very little difference between the two drugs.
0: And, of course, that's a story we're hearing over and over in solid tumors. What about anti-PD-L1 antibodies?
1: You know, Margaret Ship was at Memorial. I invited her for Grand Rounds. And she presented data that the anti pdl one drugs make little sense. I don't know necessarily the whole science behind it, but she has a significant amount of data that they don't look like they're going to be active in lymphoma. And nobody's really moving forward with that.
0: That's interesting. And in terms of liquid tumors outside of HL, well, first of all, are there any data anywhere Other than these three presentations? These have been the only presentations. And so we don't know anything right now, but anything beyond HL other than the data you were just talking about from your place?
1: Correct. Certainly, there's no doubt there'll be an MDS presentation, I would think, at ASCO. I can't imagine it won't be.
0: You mentioned some of the patients that you've taken care of who've been treated with checkpoint inhibitors. Any that stand out in particular in terms of either response or complications?
1: There are patients who I've taken care of with the checkpoint inhibitors that this is the best response they've ever had. Everything they've treated has failed them. Failed ABVD, failed ICE, couldn't get to a transplant or got to a transplant, progressed right through Brentuximavidotin. And some of these people are now to the point where they have either a stable partial response and we really don't have a good idea of what to do with them.
0: So let's talk about some of the other papers that were presented at ASH related to HL, beginning with data presented by Dr. Connors on bevacizumab longer-term outcomes.
1: Yeah, so this is the you know as you know this has been published already in Lancet Oncology. It's a two-pronged study. Originally, patients were given ABVD and Brentuximab and that was found to be quite toxic, and there were two patients who died from pulmonary toxicity. That's when bleomycin was stopped, and the treatment then morphed into AVD, and vedotin, So they presented data on both cohorts of patients, and the exact number of patients is 51 patients. And I think the bottom line is, is that if you exclude the, pa- now, of course, this is not necessarily kosher, but if you exclude the two patients who had pulmonary toxicity, which was very unfortunate, and you do not count that as a failure, then, you know, the majority of patients have done extremely well. Even if you do count them as events, you know, the three-year failure-free survival is 83% and 96%. Now, the follow-up is shorter in the patients who haven't gotten on the non bleomycin cohort, but I do think that physicians in the community should be very comfortable with the fact that if the randomized study was available to them comparing ABVD versus AVD and rituximavidotin, they should participate. It is potentially practice changing.
0: So what about this paper, 4431, the phase two study of induction with ABVD followed by b consolidation?
1: I thought this was interesting. It's only for patients with early stage Hodgkin lymphoma, non-bulky, no B symptoms. And they risk stratify the patients based upon their PET response after two cycles of chemotherapy. If they were PET negative, no more chemotherapy, and they got BV consolidation. If they were PET positive or had unfavorable disease, they got four months of chemotherapy followed by BV consolidation. And what was interesting is that most of the patients did extremely well. The PET response was excellent after two doses of chemotherapy with ABVD. Remember, it's a favorable patient population. And the follow-up is short, but you can see it coming. You can see that These investigators are interested in substituting radiation therapy for BV maintenance. and We'll just say maintenance that they picked is six doses. So one can see that their plan is to take early stage Hodgkin lymphoma patients and randomize the patients who are PET negative or at the end of their chemotherapy to RT or BV maintenance. I can see that coming. It's a good design.
0: Let's talk about uh, another great paper that you presented, the much-awaited Athera trial.
1: So the Athera study, which has been submitted for publication, there's some interesting tidbits with it to begin with. First, it's the only placebo-controlled randomized study ever done in Hodgkin lymphoma, in all the eons of studies that we've done. Number two, it's the only transplant study in aggressive lymphoma that adds a new agent to the backbone of whatever transplant type of approach you're using, either as part of the conditioning regimen or a part of post-transplant therapy that's positive. They're all negative. The Bexar studies are negative. The Rituximab studies are negative. The Zevalin studies are negative. You name it, they're all negative. The primary endpoint of this study was two-year progression-free survival. Now, when we designed this study, back in Lugano in 2009, which is when we designed the study. The median survival of patients that a auto transplant failed the patient was 26 months. That's what it was. So that's what was felt to be the primary endpoint. We now know, though, that five and a half years later, that the median survival of patients that a stem cell transplant fails in the era of brentuximibidotin palliation, in the era of panobinostat palliation, for example, in the era of getting checkpoint inhibitors, is probably closer to 48 months. So to look for an overall survival difference in this setting is going to take at least three or four more years. So I stressed that quite extensively at the conferences. So the primary endpoint was progression-free survival at two years, and 65% of the patients are progression-free at two years who were randomized to Brentuximab maintenance, and 45% of the patients are progression-free for those who got placebo. And from my point of view, these patients are all cured because almost no patient relapses after 24 to 30 months after a stem cell transplant. So there are very few patients who are at risk anymore to have a problem. What will happen to all the patients with active disease where the stem cell transplant failed, and when those patients will eventually succumb to Hodgkin lymphoma, I can't answer that question. When somebody asked me, well, you just presented the pembrolizumab data, and people are getting this now for an extended period of time, I said, well, that's exactly the reason why we can't predict what's going to happen to overall survival. But I don't believe that the checkpoint inhibitors, for example, are curative in Hodgkin lymphoma. I do think that everybody's going to eventually have a problem, so I do think that patients will pass away after a failed stem cell transplant, but I'm not exactly sure when. So it's the only positive trial done in Hodgkin lymphoma transplant setting. It's the only third randomized study ever done in the transplant setting in Hodgkin lymphoma. The other two were published in 1993 in The Lancet and in 2002 in The Lancet. So I think we've come a long way, and I do believe when this is peer-reviewed that it will become standard of care for the patient populations that were studied. For how long, I don't know, though. Because you got to remember, everybody on this study was brentuximab naive Nobody got AVD brentuximab. Nobody got BV-ICE or BV-bendamustine. None of those treatments were given. So I do think that there's going to be a window where this will be standard of care. And remembering that transplanters have never had a positive study, they're excited about it.
0: What about toxicity? Kind of looked like there's a fair amount of neuropathy. Maybe. There is
1: neuropathy. I mean, there's no doubt there's neuropathy. So typically, with brituximavidotin, both sensory and sometimes motor neuropathy can be a side effect. So the interesting things about neuropathy is that in patients who actually got neuropathy, the median number of doses they received is 10. So it's almost never seen early on. And patients who actually got 10 doses of BV, actually many of them did actually quite well. And it's typical management of patients with BV. First, you have a dose reduction. And then if there's further toxicity, the treatment was stopped. So in the real world, as opposed to being on a research study, do we need to give 16 doses of Vedotin after a stem cell transplant? I don't know the answer to that. When we do some subset analyses on the patient populations, it may be that there are patients who actually do benefit from this protracted treatment. But it may be that the number of doses will be less in patients who achieve less benefit.
0: I see that 85% of these patients with neuropathy had resolution or improvement How often do you see, under these carefully monitored situations, serious long-term peripheral neuropathy?
1: It's very unusual, but I think that these things are underreported anyway. You can't underreport a rash, obviously, but I think it's easy for patients who know they're on a study that can help them. I think subjective complaints can be underreported. Now, on this particular study, there were quality of life forms that were filled out quarterly on these patients, which have not been assessed yet. But we'll be assessed at another presentation, and I'll be very interested to see how that compares out to the actual toxicity that was reported.
0: What about abstract 293, looking at bevacizumab combined with bendamustine for HL?
1: Yeah, so I thought this was interesting. We opted not to participate in this, even though, as the audience knows, I did the phase one with Benda, and we published phase one, two. I was published in the JCO a year and a half ago. We didn't participate because Bendem had a high response rate, but the response duration was really short. So we were concerned that there could be a problem. Whether we made a mistake or not is a matter of debate. But in this particular study, I think the take-home messages are that the combination of Bendemustine and BV has a lot of infusion reactions. Who knew, quite frankly, to the point where there was some life-threatening infusion reactions.
0: Any rationale for that?
1: You know, you can get an infusion reaction from Benda. It's unusual. And you can get one from BV as well. But after they changed their pretreatment, it was much more manageable. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that the response rate was high and the CR rate was very high. Many of these patients went to transplant who had a CR after the first restaging. The number of stem cells collected was modest, a little bit less than normal. My biggest concern with this, first of all, I like the treatment. I don't like the progression-free survival curve though, which is not flat, unfortunately. And I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but at very short follow-up, the curves look fairly similar to the athera curves, quite frankly. And this doesn't look anything like the curves that, you know, the outcome we have with the BVICE program,
0: for example. Let's talk about some of the papers presented at Ash on T-cell lymphoma, beginning with 804, this phase two study of B. vedotin and mycosis fungoides.
1: So this is a study that also has been a long time coming. And some of the interesting things about the study is because it's MF, there were multiple biopsies that were done. And they were able to quantify CD30 expression Because there's a big ongoing debate of whether or not there's any activity of BV in tumors that are CD30 negative, to the point, as you know, that there are randomized studies being done in non-Hodgkin lymphoma looking at RCHOP plus or minus BV, and some of those patients do not express CD30. Once again, in this particular study, there was a 5% cutoff, meaning that in tumors that had at least 5% CD30 expression, there was no correlation, really, in response to b Vodotin, and the response was quite high. The response was 70%. And some of these patients have been on therapy for up to a year. So there is absolutely no doubt that CD30-positive cutaneous lymphoma, I would say that this will become a standard treatment program for these patients based upon this data.
0: What about CD30-negative disease? What do you think is going on there?
1: Well, in this particular study, there was no evidence that there was a response. And I think that there was an abstract, which you didn't pull, looking at the response rate of B. in CD30-negative non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I'm doing those off the top of my head. I think, I don't know, there were a number of different subsets. And the response rate was in the 20% range. So it's not zero, but it's not what you would expect. I will say at our center, Eunice would never let us do a study of bevodotin in a CD30 negative
0: subset. Is the thinking that this is maybe a testing assay issue or a biology thing?
1: They believe it's a testing issue.
0: What about this paper 803 that your colleague Steve Horowitz presented on Develisib?
1: So duvelisib is a second-generation PI3 kinase drug. As you know, there's a laundry list of these now. This is a PI3 kinase gamma-delta inhibitor. This is the T-cell lymphoma cohort. And obviously, there is some rationale to give PI3 kinase drugs in T-cell lymphoma. And this is the phase 1 slash phase 1b study. Half the patients had PTCL and half the patients had T-cell lymphoma. Drug is given orally twice a day, and the response rate, if you compare it to what's approved in PTCL, is robust. Nearly half the patient's responded. What's the kicker with this particular drug? It does cause LFT abnormalities, and that absolutely physicians who are taking care of patients on this drug need to be monitoring this fairly stringently when folks are getting it. So I think that's the real take-home message between this. The response rate is high. It's certainly higher than romidepsin or balinostat or paralotrexate. It has its own unique toxicity profile.
0: Do you see a future for this drug? And what about the issue with the LFTs?
1: I think that its only future is probably in T-cell lymphoma. And I think that it's a drug that, as we know, this class of drug can be combined with other things. We know that there's tremendous response rate with idolosib and rituximab, so there's no doubt that these drugs can probably be combined. Are we ready for like a chop duvelosib study, like phase 1, 2 study? I think we're ready for that.
0: How about this poster on bolinostat in patients with thrombocytopenia?
1: So I think that was actually quite interesting, actually, Neil. So the T-cell lymphoma patients notoriously have abnormal hemologic parameters, either because of their disease or because they're heavily pretreated. And I think that the fact that balinistat could be given safely, because they have very few treatment options, the fact that balinistat could be given safely in this particular patient population... I think is important for practitioners, especially since the drug is approved. I mean, there seems to be no reason why folks wouldn't use this as a standard. Like somebody has low platelet count in relapsed PTCL, why not give this? I mean, obviously the results weren't phenomenal, but it was safe enough compared to some of the other drugs I thought was impressive. What we would need to see in peer-reviewed format is what was the difference between patients who had a low platelet count because of marrow involvement and a low platelet count because of being heavily pretreated and was there a difference
0: hmm any speculations
1: it's probably did better in patients with marrow disease
0: hmm what about this paper 504 looking at romadepson with chop and ptcl
1: yeah well this is the next big thing i would think This ongoing study led to the random assignment trial, which is ongoing in Europe. But this is the final analysis of that study. And I think it's not a large study, but some of the take-home messages that I thought were interesting, as did some of my colleagues at Memorial, was it seemed like the cardiac issue was not ignorable, meaning that there were two early cardiac deaths and there was another cardiac event
0: Any theoretical reasons why, you know, romadepsin would add to cardiac toxicity?
1: Well, I mean, it could be related to QT interval for all we know. Hmm. So we've done, I'm sure you spoke to some other folks as well. This is not an easy drug to give with cardiac monitoring. There's no doubt that RoCHOP, which is going to be called, it's the rumor, definitely causes more thrombocytopenia than CHOP alone. But, you know, once again, I mean... 57% 57% PFS at 18 months is not unreasonable in an older patient population. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't do the randomized study.
0: How are you approaching patients right now with PTCL off study?
1: So for the younger patients, a lot of them we're giving up to, CHOP with a etoposide and transplanting them. We still do that. Autotransplants and first remission, a lot of places do. Obviously, patients who are CD30, we give chop and Bv2 on and off study we try to sneak that in off study if we can up front yep yep and obviously we participate in, in a lot of the BV studies
0: before we get off that that's kind of interesting I'm not sure I've heard that one before do you see a lot of your fellow investigators trying to do the same thing well I think that I mean it makes total sense but it's not not
1: necessarily I mean I think that So our standard panel will have, we stain for CD30 and all non-hontical lymphoma. And we'll ask them if there's intense expression of CD30 outside of ALCL. And if there is, I kind of think it's hard not to offer that to your patient, quite frankly. The disease is, you know, so few people are cured, especially in patients who you're not going to transplant.
0: And you have no problem getting it paid for. I did say that, but
1: (laughs) if you don't try, then there's no reason not to try.